I hear people tell me, well, why are there so many different kinds of churches? If you're all followers of Jesus, shouldn't all the churches look the same? I'm going, no. It wouldn't be so boring if there's only one color in the world. God was giving us a deeper stewardship as Mosaic that we need to plant a flag in the future and call not only humanity there, but the church there as well. This conference is us together. And what Mosaic's calling is, what our mission is, is for us to be a voice in the wilderness. We want to be the place where everyone knows they have a place called home, where they don't have to agree with us to be with us, where they don't have to believe to belong. This is Mosaic. We plant our flag on this ground. Join Erwin McManus, Brian Houston, Judah Smith, and more for the Mosaic Conference, September 22nd through the 24th in downtown Los Angeles. Register and get more information at mosaicconference.com. Hey guys, welcome to the Mosaic Podcast. We're coming to you from the heart of Los Angeles, California, and it is our joy and our privilege to know there's a tribe across the world that has joined us on this mission of Jesus. I'm amazed how many people have told me that it's this podcast that has really given them life, has renewed their faith, and for many of them have rediscovered Christ. If you're one of the men and women who have been encouraged and helped and strengthened and maybe even rediscovered your faith because of what's happening here at Mosaic, I want to ask you to take a step and become an investor in what God is doing through Mosaic. I love the fact that our community here in Los Angeles has been committed to you. Now I'm going to ask you to be committed to them because together we can do more than we could ever do alone. So I want you to go to the mosaic.org give section of the website and I want you to make a commitment to be a part of taking this message across the world. When we receive, we should be grateful. But when we give, we are now expressing that gratitude in tangible, practical ways. Let's together get the message of Jesus to every corner of this planet. Enjoy the podcast and thank you so much for joining the tribe. Before we're seated, let's take a moment and pray together. I imagine that many of you have already heard that there was a shooting in Baton Rouge and that three officers were killed, seven wounded in, um, in, um, in a clearly pre-planned um, uh, massacre. We are not only a country but a planet that is in civil war. We need only the slightest justification to mark another human being an enemy, to create the lines between us and them. And whether it's black and white, Muslim, Christian, secular, religious, we're extraordinarily adept at creating a framework that allows us to justify making another human being our target of violence. And we are here this morning, and I want you to know you are not powerless. You are not powerless. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to feel as if you're a victim waiting to happen. But most importantly, you do not need, we do not need to lower ourselves to the standards of others 
We do not need to allow hate to enter our hearts, to allow any narrative to justify racism, violence. We are here this morning, and the us is not just us in the room. The us is not just those who believe in Jesus. The us is not those who call themselves Christians. The us is every human being on this planet. We are us together. And and we will stand for us. And we will pray for us. For whether a person lives in Nepal or they live in Syria, whether a person lives in Paris or Nice or in Baton Rouge or Detroit, whether a person is Asian or Latino or white or black or atheist or Muslim, they are us. And they may not consider us them, but it doesn't matter. Every line they draw, we will erase. Every wall they build, we will tear down. So let's pray together. Father, we stand together today knowing that there is no heart that is more grieved than yours. No one with a deeper sense of loss than you. For we who are created in your image have lost our way. We have lost your heart. Sometimes it just seems like we've lost our minds. And so we pray for the absurd. We pray for peace. We pray for forgiveness. We pray that love would prevail and that we'd find again our humanity. And we thank you, Jesus, that you stepped into the mess of our humanness and considered yourself as nothing to be made in human likeness that we might find our way back to you. I pray, Father, for those who are within the sound of my voice who are filled with fear, who might be overwhelmed with anxiety or distress or grief or loss. I pray, Father, for those who are angry who are angry at injustice, that it would not justify injustice. We pray for those who have been wounded by the violence, that they would not become the violent. We pray that you would call us to a higher way. We pray in the name of Jesus, who is our hope. Amen and amen.
Well, I'm on vacation today. It looks a lot like work. But in the middle of all the turmoil in the world, I wanted to step into this moment and be here with you. Because sometimes when the world is out of control and life doesn't make sense, it makes us more aware of the lack of control we have of, over our own lives. And sometimes what, what happens on a grand scale simply magnifies what's going on inside of our own souls. And one of the greatest dilemmas when we're overwhelmed with the problems of life is that we feel powerless. We wonder, is there anything that we can do? And that sense that the problem is too big for you, too big for us, too big for anyone, can actually create a level of paralysis where you end up doing nothing. Because you don't realize that even though you cannot solve the whole problem by yourself, the whole problem cannot be solved without you. So I want us to take a few moments today and talk about what we can do and what even in the most extraordinary way God has already devised as the most extraordinary strategy of reclaiming our humanity. After the Paris attacks, I, I, I took a moment and have a conversation that, that I called the end of violence. And, and we're going to re-podcast that talk because I don't want to say the same thing again. But it seems that we've had to have the same conversation over and over and over again. And this week when we were seeing some of the horrific imagery from Nice, Mariah asked me, do you think it's worse now than it's ever been? Has it always been like this or is this just the most violent time in the world? And one of the difficult things for us to realize is that we have a violent history with humans. We, we have a troubled past. Our resume for being human is incredibly lacking. And fortunately, we, we have enough high notes throughout our story that we can point to and say, that's the best of us. We, we have those moments in history that, that give us a picture of how we could be, how we could live, what the story of humanity could be like, but, but it seems so oftentimes that the best of us is drowning in the rest of us. And I, I, I share with Mariah my reflection that I, I think the reality is that the world has always been violent. The world has always had injustice. The world has always had atrocities, but now we have so much information. We, we, we have mediums that allow us to see what humans are doing every day. And whether it's through the technology of television or iPhones, whether it's through the mediums of the internet or, or, or the press, we are more aware of everything that's happening. And even with all that we know, we don't even know everything that's going on. If we knew everything that was happening, I think we would all feel overwhelmed. If we could see what was actually happening, even in our own city, on our own streets, in the houses just around the corner, we might, all of us, just simply not get out of bed in the morning and decide there's just nothing we can do. But there is something 
we can do. And I want us to know this morning that, that we are not powerless to do good in the world. That if anything, this should rile you up. If anything, this should intensify your commitment to good in the world. If anything, this moment should place a fire in you because those who have evil as their intention, those who are motivated by violence and darkness are not waiting for permission to act. And so those who are committed to making the world better, those who are committed to making the human story a better story, those who are committed to make love our theme and peace our goal, we have to rise up and not live a life of apathy or indifference. And I was thinking about it this morning because I, 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 I don't know if you've noticed, but, but music reflects the experience of a people. I remember years ago, I heard about a hymn that was written by the Appalachian people that had lyrics that said, there are no flies on Jesus. I just don't think that song would ever be written in Beverly Hills. I don't know if Beverly Hills has flies. They can't afford to go there. They stay in our neighborhoods. But but where that song was written, there were a lot of flies because there was a lot of poverty. And so a song is written out of the context of their experience. Have you ever noticed that that many of the Negro spirituals are about life after death? That at the core of the theme is heaven and not earth. Because when you live in slavery and when you live in oppression and when you live a life that you hope is just a dash and not a period, you write about heaven because it's your only hope to live the kind of life you dream of. Our music betrays us or reveals us, even when it is our worship. And so, so much of the story of the church, the story of faith, has been rooted in life after death. Because essentially, over the generations, the church has given up on life before death. We hope that there will be a day when there is no suffering and believe there's going to be a day when there is peace. And we live with this this great aspiration that one day, one day there will be a new heaven and a new earth. One day there will be afterlife. And in that afterlife, and I love the imagery of the scriptures, there will be no more tears. There will be no more suffering. And people ask me all the time, why don't you talk more about Life after death. I usually just joke and say I I have so little experience. (laughs) I try to keep my conversations about the things that I've experienced and things that I know. But there's a reason for that, and it's more deeply rooted than that. It's that I'm an idealist. I do not want to give up on what I believe we could be now. I don't want to concede the best of the human story to what will only happen after human history is over. I do not want to believe that we can only become the best of us after we breathe our last breath. And I'm convinced there has to be a people who believe we can be better than this. We can do better than this. We must do better than this. And... And so I'd rather die a fool 
living my life, calling us to a greater humanity, to a higher humanity, and be looked upon as a person who didn't understand the human condition, than a person who simply surrenders to the condition of the worst of us, and then simply dies with a great sense of righteousness that we always knew people were that bad. There are some peculiar scriptures that I want to read to you this morning that relate to this. In the book of Acts, chapter 2, Jesus has been crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. His disciples were a little confused, never having experienced that before. And then after Jesus had risen from the dead, they thought he was going to stay with them, and he said, I'm leaving, (laughs) which was not inspiring. So they waited around in an upper room, paralyzed. Jesus told them to wait, told them to pray. In Acts chapter 2, it says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, which, by the way, is thematic to what I want to drive into your heart today. They were all together in one place. See, we, we live in a time where we have devalued the importance of the church. And we do not understand why the church is so important to the course of humanity's future. But I want you to see this with me today. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. I will not be explaining that today. (laughs) That's going to be on another Sunday, so you have to come back. Okay, I'm going to really nail that. And uh, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. I'm going to cover that at another time too. Uh, Now there... They were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. And so these followers of Jesus, a handful of them, these were described as ignorant and unlearned men. Didn't even talk about the women. And suddenly they began speaking in what they described as tongues with with fire coming on them and the spirit moving like the wind. And everyone heard them speaking in their own languages, which I think is so important. It's amazing how 2,000 years later, tongues becomes a language no one can understand rather than the language that helped everyone understand. Verse 7, utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans, in other words, stupid, uneducated? Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How then is that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phygra, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans, Cretans were there. I'm just throwing that in there. And Arabs, 
We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues, in our own languages. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? That's exactly what I'm asking. Some, however, made fun of them and said, I love this, they've had way too much wine. So it's like, they're drunk. That's the only way you can explain this. But my experience is when a person is drunk, there is no intelligible language. <laughs> then Peter stood up with 11, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. I love his response. Fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. <laughs> Come back later. But right now, it's too early. Happy hour hasn't come. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel in the last days, God said, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. And the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And here it is. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, is this a kind of bizarre way to start the movement of Jesus? I mean, if you're going to pick an opening ceremony to usher in the movement of the church into the world, this one's kind of unusual. In just a few weeks, we're going to be having the Olympic Games in Brazil. And everyone, even if they don't like sports, will usually watch the opening ceremonies. And I imagine in Rio, they're going to be epic. I remember sitting with Kim watching the opening ceremonies in China. We, we love the Olympic Games. It's that moment where the whole world is supposed to come together and put all their differences aside, put, put all their, their agendas aside and come together and in the spirit of competition, celebrate unity across the world. Of course, we know that that it's more of an illusion than a reality. And I remember in 1980, when we boycotted the Olympic Games because the Soviet Union had invaded Afghanistan. And of course, the Russians and others then boycotted the 1984 Olympics here in LA in protest to when we boycotted the Olympics in 1980. But the Russians should have just waited because then they could have boycotted the Olympics for when we invaded Afghanistan. And so it could have all worked out. <laughs> And of all the games that should have ever been boycotted, it probably should have been the 1936 Berlin Games. But if we had boycotted the Berlin Games, we would not have the heroism of Jesse Owens and his story to inspire us for generations to come. And I don't think it's incidental that humanity tries to create a moment like the Olympic Games that says let's all come together, nation upon nation, people with people, and celebrate together, and for a moment be united rather than divided. But even with the imagery, we're not even able to sustain a measure of reality. There's something in the human spirit that knows we're supposed to walk together. 
and yet continuously keep falling apart. What I want you to see this morning is, is that this moment called Pentecost is not incidental to the human stories. It, it is not an isolated moment that is disconnected from what God has been trying to tell us. See, what happens in this moment of Pentecost, the reason he takes these Galileans, and in that moment with thousands of people, I mean, what, what perfect timing. The entire world came together in Jerusalem. See, the people of Israel thought that history was always their enemy, that God was never coming through. Because after all, they were supposed to be a free people, and they were entrusted with this powerful message that they were created by God for God, that there was only one God, and they never took on that mantle. They wanted God for themselves. They didn't want to give God to the world. They wanted God just to bless their nation. They did not want to be a blessing to all the nations in the world. But even when God started with Abraham, he said, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. But there's just something inside of us that's so win-lose. We don't want to just win. We need someone to lose. It wasn't enough for Israel to hear God say, I'm going to bless you. They didn't like that God said, I'm going to bless everyone through you. It wasn't enough to be blessed. They wanted to make sure everyone wasn't blessed. There's something inside of us that becomes so greedy, so consumptive, that we need someone to not have to validate that we have. Someone to have less that makes us feel like we're more. And so here we are at Pentecost, and the reason this moment worked is because when the Babylonians came, the Jews were dispersed across the world. When the Egyptians conquered them, the Jews were spread across the world. When the Persians came, the Jews were spread across the world. When the Romans came, the Jews were spread across the world. Every time they were captured by a different empire, they were dispersed across the world. They were mad at God. Why aren't you protecting our home? And they didn't realize that God was making the earth their home. They wanted God to give them a safe space, but God wanted to send them out to the dangerous places where his message and his life and his love and his forgiveness was most needed in the world. And it confounds me that 2,000 years later, the church makes the same mistake. We want God to give us a safe world. We want God to protect us. We want to make sure the government protects our laws and our rights. We're, we're so worried that we need candidates to protect the church because we think the church is so weak and so anemic that it cannot survive a world with hardship. And the reality is that God will absolutely disperse us across the world through any means necessary if that's the only way to get us to care about the whole world. So they've been dispersed across the world, and guess what? They had to learn the language of the world. So all these Jews came back, but Hebrew and Aramaic were not their natural languages. So now they spoke the language of the Arabs and the Cretans. They spoke the language of the Romans and the barbarians. And they came from all over the world for Pentecost. And in that moment, and they were all most likely educated enough that the message had come out in Hebrew or in Aramaic, they would have all understood. But God wanted them to know that I'm speaking to the nations, not just to a nation. To the peoples, not just to a people. And in Pentecost, God was reversing something that the people of Israel understood God had done. So I want you to go back with me to Genesis chapter 11. 
I want to read verses 1 through 9. Now the whole world had one language and one common speech. Did you know that there was a time where the whole world had one language and one common speech? And it wasn't English. I know that's what Americans think. Americans think it all began with English and it went downhill from there. (laughs) Now the whole world had one language and one common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. I think it's fascinating to me the way people try to understand the Tower of Babel. And even this morning when Kim asked me, what are you going to talk about in the middle of all this crisis? It's the Tower of Babel. And she looked at me like I was out of my mind. (laughs) See, because... Because the way the narrative unwraps, you could could actually assume that God's trying to hold you back. I mean, if you take the story at face value, it's like God looking at them going, we got to stop them. They're doing the impossible. They're building a tower that's going to get to the heavens. We need to stop us. Let's divide up their languages and let's separate them. And that way, they, they, they can't do as much as they could do together. I just want to Clarify a few things. There's just not enough brick on this earth to build a tower that's going to get you to heaven. So I I think God knew that. I think God said, whoa, what they can do with brick and mortar, that's impressive. Stop it. I don't think God was going, oh, no. I never knew if they came together, they would do that much good. We need to to diminish their expectations, their capacity, their potential. See, I think a lot of people see God as someone who's always trying to hold them back. God's just trying to hold you down because you're so awesome. (laughs) That God didn't know what to do with all of you. You got all that talent and all that potential and all that intelligence and you just made God nervous. So this is humanity making God nervous because God, God's not going to give up his top spot. But there's a little clue here. It says that, that humanity came together to make a name for themselves. And so they are determined to make a name for themselves and replace the name of God and to place themselves in the place of God. 
And what we discover from the time of Adam and Eve to the time of Noah, and from the time of Noah to the time of Babel, is that something broke inside of the human spirit. A darkness consumed us. And though we were created for love, we chose hate. Though we were created for peace, we chose violence. And though we were created for community, we chose our own isolation. And though we were created to worship God, we chose to worship ourselves. And in this moment, what God was doing is he was slowing down the communal evil we would accomplish together. When God created the languages, he was actually slowing down the course of our own destructive nature so that we might become the recipients of his good. So listen, look at this imagery. God at Babel divides humanity and creates all the languages to separate us. And at Pentecost, God reunites us and speaks to us in every language so that he could make us one again. And so at Babel, God is actually separating us from the darkness that will brew in our souls and spread from us. And at Pentecost, God is bringing us together because he is placing his spirit in us and wants to use us as the conduits for good in the world. I I, I was thinking about that phrase, together we are better, but that's not always true. Because see, we don't know if these isolated attacks in Europe are ISIS or just individuals informed by ISIS or influenced by ISIS or converted by ISIS. But ISIS has become the symbol that we understand represents an ideology. We don't know if the murders, the attacks on our police force, on innocent policemen who happen to be wearing the same color uniforms as perhaps policemen who have been less than innocent. But we can in a moment begin to justify the darkness in our heart by believing we're a part of something bigger than us that allows our darkness to have a place to exist. But at Pentecost, God says, I have a new humanity that I'm ushering into the world. Not a humanity that divides you, but unites us. Not one that's defined by hate, but by love, not by violence, but by peace. Not by bitterness, but by forgiveness. And I'm gonna pour my spirit into you, and you are going to be this new humanity. And by the way, the name that God chose to describe that new humanity is church. See, church isn't supposed to be something we attend. It is something we are. And it's good that we come together as the church, but it's so much better when we move together as the church. And I don't think it's incidental that in Genesis, it says that's why they called it Babel. And that's where the word babblers come from. Because if you're speaking in another language, it's like you're a babbler. And the only time I've ever seen anyone described as a babbler in the scriptures 
is in Acts 17 when Paul goes to Athens and tries to tell them about Jesus, and they say, what is this babbler trying to say? And I love the fact that Paul, who's basically like the founder of Christianity other than Jesus, the one that, that Jesus picked to represent him in this first century, the one that God chose to use to write the scriptures in the New Testament, he's called a babbler. I love that. And they said, what's this babbler trying to say? And I thought, if Paul's called a babbler, no wonder I have such, such a hard time being understood. And the reason he was called a babbler is because he was now in foreign territory. He was in Athens, named after the pagan goddess of sensuality, Athena, on a mount called Mars Hill and the pagan god of war, talking to a man named Dionysus, named after the pagan god of drunkenness. He's in the middle of another world, and they don't understand what he's, what he's trying to say to them. And so this babbler explains this to them. Listen to these words in Acts 17, beginning of verse 24. It says, the God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Here it is. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Why did, he, why did he do this? Why did he create Babel? Here it is. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of our, your own poets have said, we are all his offspring. I want you to stay with me just for a moment. Because I want you to realize that human history is not incidental. It is not a coincidence. What Paul is actually saying is that every nation on this planet is created for a very specific intention. That God chose the exact time and exact place for every person to be born. And so if you were born in Uzbekistan, or if you were born in the Ukraine, or if you were born in Alabama, or if you were born in Beijing, if you were born in Tokyo, whatever, if you were born speaking Tagalog, or you were born speaking Japanese, or you were born speaking Spanish, you were born speaking Portuguese, that that was God's strategic placement of you on this planet so that you would have the best opportunity to seek him and reach out to him and find him. And so for us to see peoples from different countries or different colors or different languages or different belief systems as our enemy makes us the enemy of God's intention in human history. Because Paul is standing in Athens and he's no longer standing in Jerusalem. He understands he's standing in a different world, in a new world with a different people who speak a different language, different culture, different belief system, different gods. And he's not at all off balance. So I want you to know that you're exactly where you're supposed to be because God has always seen you. You always mattered to him. This is all about you coming to know him. And I know sometimes it's hard to understand. How is it possible for someone in Michigan to have the same chance as someone in Nepal. But it's because you think God is from Michigan. <laughs> but God is not from Michigan. God isn't from Michigan visiting Nepal. God is from Nepal. 
and from Michigan. I'll concede that. God is from India and Iowa. He is not closer to a person born in the home of Christians than he is to a person born in the home of Muslims. He never made this divide. We made the divide. Listen to his words one more time. From one man, Adam, he made all the nations. Man, what's wrong with us? For centuries we believed Israel is God's nation. And then suddenly we go, America is God's nation. Now I love this nation. I'm an immigrant to this nation. I'm grateful to be a part of this nation. I'm wearing red, white, and blue today. Just so you can know, I represent. I love the freedom that this country has given me. The opportunities that this country has given me. I love the values that this country has represented for so many decades, but I also understand that this is not God's nation. Every nation is God's nation. From one man, he made all the nations. And if God has blessed this nation more than any other nation in this time in history, it just means we have more responsibility than any nation on this planet. He made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, even Fiji. <laughs> and we try, to, we try to romanticize things. I go to, I go to New Zealand and start talking about, you know, the, the indigenous peoples before and, you know, how awesome they were. I go, did they eat people? Oh, yeah, there is that. See, it's like, <laughs> there is always that. All right, so we pollute the ocean and they ate other tribes. All right, we all have issues. Let's stop romanticizing cultures. Let's just realize that we all are trapped inside of the human condition until Jesus sets us free from it. And he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and boundaries of their lands. And he did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from any one of us. I want you to realize that. God is not far from you. You may be far from God, but he is not far from you. And you you may be a world-class athlete, but you cannot run fast enough to outrun God. You can't swim far enough to outswim God. God is with you and he is near to you. And I want you to know, God is near to every Buddhist, and God is near to every Muslim, and God is near to every atheist, and God is just waiting for every human being just in one breath to say, God, I need you. And God is not holding their past against them, and he's not holding our past against us. He's just pressing our future into us. And then, I I love this. He says, for in him we live and move and have our being. Even as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. I want you to realize that there is a power in community. And in the past, God tried to work through a nation so that all the nations could know that God was for them. But that nation hoarded it for itself. 
And we have not learned the lessons of the past. If we have found anything worth living for, we must not hoard it to ourselves. If we have found forgiveness, then we should give forgiveness. If we have found freedom, we should give freedom. If we have found love, we should give love. If we have found life, we should give life. It doesn't mean you only give it to the person who agrees with you or believes with you. You give it to everyone. Because it is the lost commodity of the human story. I just want to read to you a few reminders of what it means to be the church. In Colossians chapter 3. Verse 11, it says, here there, there is no Gentile or Jew, no circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Galatians chapter 3, verses 28, 29, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. You see a theme here? Neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Ephesians 3.10, his intent was now that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. See what God is doing? He is actually doing a work in human history of bringing the world back together again. He is taking us from Babylon to Pentecost, and he's actually doing it through this beautiful community he's calling the church. And it is through the church that we're supposed to erase the lines, destroy the walls, build the bridges, create community, and it can't simply be a slogan. It has to be the place where everyone belongs. And I think we get confused sometimes because when we use like language like welcome home, I think sometimes we think the church is supposed to be a home for those of us who believe. But we have a home. And by the way, if you believe, you know you have another home. Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, a mansion for you with many rooms. No matter how good this home is, it's not as good as that home. And so it doesn't make any sense for us to spend our whole life trying to create a home for us when we know we've got a better home coming. Right? If you have a house, but you know you're going to buy another house, you're not going to put a lot of money in the house you have because you're going to get a better house. Unless, of course, God gave you a house. And he said, I want you to pour yourself into this house because you're going to move out of this house and you're going to give this house to people who don't have a home. See, in the end, the church is supposed to be habitat for humanity. See, in the end, we're supposed to be building a home for those who have no place called home. See, in the end, this is not just about us. This is about everyone who doesn't know they're loved, everyone who doesn't know they matter, everyone who doesn't know they have value. This is the place where people can come and say, I finally have found my home. I belong here. And I don't usually read out of the book of Revelation, so I thought I'd close with that today. <laughs> I'm trying to cover every obscure, bizarre passage in the Bible today. <laughs> Revelation chapter 22, when the story's ending, when the story's ending, he says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city, 
On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. It was always harvest time. It was always the season of abundance. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. You know what we're supposed to be? We are supposed to be the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. See, we're never to give up on what it means to be human. We are never to allow our ideals to die even though we see life realistically. We must be the ones who always call our people to their highest self. And who is our people? But everyone. And the only way we can call people to more, see, the only way we can call people out of violence is to choose peace. The only way we can call people out of bitterness is to choose forgiveness. The only way we can call people out of despair is to choose hope. The only way we can call people out of death is to choose life. The only way we can call people out of hate is to choose love. And when one person does it, I'm sure you're awesome. But when you do it by yourself, people go, oh, you're, you're so amazing. Hey, you ever had that happen? Man, John's such an amazing guy. He's just a good guy. Sharon, she's just amazing, just a beautiful human being. But when we do it together, See, when we do it together, then what happens is that people see you. But when we do it together, what they do is they see Jesus. And when we do it together, they go, what has happened in those people? Right now, they're seeing this this four-lettered word, ISIS. Saying, we know who has been impacted by ISIS because they have lived out their life like this. And we need to be the counter-revolution that people say, we know they have been transformed by Jesus because they've chosen to live like this. And we must become the standard of what it means to be human. We must be the people who choose forgiveness and mercy and justice We are the people who must fight against oppression and poverty. We must be the people who destroy the walls and erase the lines. And when people say, we thought you had a belief system. We thought you were Christians. We thought you or you against us. We could say, no, you don't understand. When we have embraced Jesus with all of our lives, you become us and we live for you. Amen. So let it begin here. Let it begin with us. Let us die because we lived as fools that we we refused to be pulled down to the lowest level of the human condition. Let's elevate the human story. 
Let's be the next chapter so that people always know there's another way, a better way. And that's why Jesus came. So that through the church, the world might remember, remember what it means to be human. Would you bow your heads with me just for a moment? Just close your eyes. Maybe you're here this morning. And you've listened, you've thought about God, you've come really close to giving your life to Jesus, but you just haven't crossed that line of faith, even going to church, but you haven't given Jesus your heart. Before we leave here today, I want to invite you to join the revolution Jesus started 2,000 years ago a revolution of faith, of hope, and of love. And if you're here and you're just overwhelmed with fear or anxiety, maybe just feel paralyzed, I want you to know that Jesus will set you free from that. He will fill you with his hope, with meaning, with purpose. I'm going to pray. And if you're here and you would like to give your life to Jesus, You want today to be that day where you begin a new story. You're ready to give him your life. You're ready to receive his life in you. I just want you to hold up your hand right now and say, Erwin, that's me. I need to give my life to Jesus. That's me right now. Just hold up your hand. Beautiful. Anyone else right now? Just hold it up high. I want to see you right now. This is why we're here. All right, we're going to pray. Anyone else right now before I pray? Don't worry about what anyone else thinks. If this is your moment, just seize it right now. I'm going to pray. I'm just going to ask everyone to join me. And if you're praying, you pray for the first time right now. Jesus, I give you my life. I know you died on the cross for me. That you rose from the dead. That you paid the price for my son. And I give you my life. I receive your forgiveness. I receive your love. I confess Jesus is Lord. And I belong to you. Father, I thank you for everyone in this room. I thank you for those who have whispered those words for the first time in their life. God, I pray for those who maybe years ago their faith was real and they let it go. They just just drifted away from you. I pray that today they would just lean into their faith, grab a hold of you, and let your love hold them tight. And God, I pray that we as a people, would reflect your son with such beauty, with such integrity, that we would represent what it means to be human and point to you, Jesus. We're not trying to build a tower to reach to the heavens because we know you've already come to earth. 
May you do your, your work in us that the world might know that they are not alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Remember, we can do together what we could never do alone. Go to mosaic.org slash give and join us in taking this message and spreading it across the world. God bless. Thanks so much.